We're going to be uh, continuing our series in the book of, the, of Ephesians. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, there are uh, black Bibles in the seats in front of you. Uh, we're going to be on page 976. Um, but to, before we jump in, to set a little bit of context, uh, in the first three verses of chapter 2, uh, we established an important truth that's foundational to what we're going to be talking about today. And that truth is that you, we, were dead in our sins. We were born physically, we're alive physically, we live and we breathe and we talk, but spiritually, we are dead. And there are some things that are listed here that show that death spiritually, uh, that, that, that testify to that fact. Um, and, they were, and, and we dealt with these in greater depth last week, but we follow the course of this world. We're subject to the, the, the whims of the culture and the people around us. We follow the prince of the power of the air, and we carry out the desires of the body and the mind rather than carrying out the desires of God. And so it wraps up by saying we were, by our nature, deserving of God's wrath. We were children of wrath. We are dead, unable to move, speak, breathe, or change. And so in that hopeless state, in that helpless state, God comes to us. He doesn't require that we go to him because we can't. We are dead. All of creation, and each one of us individually, was on a path that was, direct, that was directed and dictated by those things that we just talked about. The course of the world, the prince of the power of the air, and the desires of the body and mind. And that is a path, that is a trajectory that ends in death spiritual death and physical death. But at Christmas, God steps into the story arc of creation. He steps into the story arc of each believer. He steps in with that but God statement where he says, what came before is true. It's accurate. That is what happens. That is what you are. But what comes but what is coming in that story is more powerful than what came before. On Christmas, God stepped in and he inserted himself into his creation so as to be able to forever change that arc of humanity. So what we're going to look at today is how that is accomplished. So we're going to start again just for purposes of context, right from verse 1 in chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, 
being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with him, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. So before we pull that apart, there's three terms, there's three words that I want to define just so that we all understand together what we're talking about. Uh, The first one that we encounter is mercy. Uh, Mercy is God's goodness towards those who are in misery and distress. Mercy, misery. Unfortunately, that's the only one of these three that I have a nifty mnemonic device for. So, uh, And so when you think of mercy, um, one of the images that, that came to mind for me uh, is that of a nurse. Uh, when my daughter Rachel was born, we spent two and a half weeks in the NICU and then another couple of weeks um, still in the hospital. And uh, the nurses there ministered to her physical needs very, very well. Um, but quite honestly, it, it was Alex and I who were the most in, mer- or in, in misery and in distress in those times. And, uh, and they were there to help alleviate that. They were there to help talk us through what was happening and why, and why all of these things were happening and what the next thing to happen would be. Uh, and so when I think of mercy, when I think of mercy, I think of, I think of those nurses and how they, they loved us and they served us. Mercy, God's goodness towards those in misery and distress. And I hope that we can all relate, we can all understand what it means to be in misery and distress. Grace. Grace, God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. Who's been stopped for speeding before? Who who deserved it? Who has been let off with a warning rather than a ticket? That is an evidence or that is, a, that is an enactment of grace. You deserved punishment. You deserved a ticket. You broke the law. You were putting other people in danger. Just preaching a little bit to myself here. Um, you, you deserved punishment. But that's not what you were given. That is grace. God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. The last term is love. God's giving of himself for the benefit of others. Giving of himself for the benefit of others. The example that I think we can all uh, at least recall having seen, even if we're not parents, is that act of parenting a child. one of the one of the pieces of parenting is that you are pouring out yourself for the benefit of your children the sleepless nights 
the endless, endless dishes and diapers and laundry. You are giving of yourself for the benefit of your children. And that's one of the reasons that God gives us that metaphor of that parent-child relationship between us and him. Because just as we pour ourselves out for the benefit of our children, God pours himself out for the benefit of us. So we have mercy, God's goodness towards those who are in misery and distress. Grace, God's goodness towards those who deserve only punishment. And love, God's giving of himself for the benefit of others. So what we're going to look at today uh, is specifically that section uh, starting in verse 4. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So part of this depends on defining just who God is. Uh, and, and right here it says that he is rich in mercy. He is rich. He's wealthy. He has an abundance of mercy, of goodness to those who are in misery and distress. And this is in, in opposition to the idea of being stingy or being tight with that mercy, with that goodness. We've seen some examples of this in the past four or five weeks. Um, Joseph in that dungeon, Israel in Egypt. God saw their plight, he heard their cry, and he reacted in mercy, with mercy. We see it also in, in the stories, and, and there's four whole books of the Bible filled with them, of Jesus' mercy and compassion to the sick and the broken. Because God is so rich in mercy, when he sees us in our misery and distress, he acts, not out of obligation, but what it says here is that he acts out of love. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. It says in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He poured himself out on our behalf for our benefit. And also in 1 John, in this the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation or the payment on our behalf for our sins. So this great love, this giving of God for the benefit of others was carried forward to the point of death on a cross. There's nothing more for him to be able to give. He had given up the privileges that came with being God. It says in Philippians 2 that he did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, something to be hung on to for his own benefit. He gave them up. He gave up his pride. He gave up his dignity. He suffered pain and torture. He suffered separation from the Father for the first time ever. And in doing so, he demonstrated 
what it means to truly love. And so when we understand that, it sets those two commands that we've talked about before, to love God and to love others, in a new context. So just by virtue of our climate around here, we don't see as much of this as you would in the South. But we've all seen those people on the city streets that obviously don't have a warm, safe place to be able to sleep. So I want you to look at those people in your minds and I want you to ask, what does it look like to love that person? Do you love him by giving him a dollar? Do you love him by giving him a hundred dollars or a thousand dollars? Do you love him to buy him lunch? Is that what love looks like? To sit and eat lunch with him? Getting progressively more uncomfortable. Do you invite him to come home and stay with you? What's the example that we've been given? We've been given the example of Christ willing to suffer all things, humbled even to death on a cross. There was no pain that was too great, no sacrifice that was too much to dissuade him from that. And so he gives us a very difficult example to follow. So his mercy is a fact. His mercy is an immutable attribute. It can't be changed. And his love is an overwhelming display of affection and of sacrifice. So that is who God is. But who does this passage say that we are? It says in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses. So our part in this passage, our part in this work is only listed as something that is in direct opposition to God's mercy and his love. And that contrast is important. You have God in his rich mercy and God in his great love and us in our sin, us in our death and our trespasses. We bring nothing but death and sin to the table. What it doesn't say here is, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, as long as they're generally good people has made us alive together. As long as they have been to church more than 50% of the time, as long as they led good lives, everything that is good that works to affect our salvation, everything that is good that works to bring about our salvation comes from God and only from God. And everything bad that necessitates our salvation comes from us and only from us. 
So God, in, his, in the riches of his mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, despite our death, despite our sin, made us alive. One of the great things about our God is that he is a life-giving God. We see that in the beginning of the Bible, right? In the creation story, in Genesis. He gives life. He speaks life into the world where there was no life. And Jesus tells us in John 10 that he came that we may have life and have it abundantly. There's another passage that's one of my favorites. Uh, this is Ezekiel 37, page 724 in your pew Bibles. Uh, and this is, this is a uh, book of prophecy uh, written by Ezekiel. And it's got some imagery to it, but I, I think that it's wonderful, wonderful imagery. Um, so this is chapter 37, right in verse 1. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews on you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied prophesied as I was commanded. And I prophesied, and there was a sound, and behold, a rattling. And the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them. But there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live." So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and they stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Then he said to me, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up, and our hope is lost. Indeed, we are cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will bring you into the land of Israel, and you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live. And I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken and I will do it, declares the Lord. So there's a lot of imagery there that we don't have time to break apart. But the point is that you had these dry bones laying on the ground. And the word of the Lord and the power of his spirit came upon them and they were brought to life. We serve a life-giving God. The greatest example of this, the single greatest example of being raised from death to life 
is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After he was crucified, he lay in the grave. But he didn't remain there. His disciples went looking for him, and he was gone. He had been brought to life by the power of God, and not just raised to life, but he was taken. He was ascended into heaven. And we saw this a few weeks back in, uh, in Ephesians 1. Verse 20, where he says, uh, According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. And so what we see here is we see three actions that, that, that God took, made us alive, raised us up with him, and seated us with him. And so these are the things that were done to Christ. And as it was done to Christ, it is done to us. Christ was made alive even when dead, when he was resurrected. Christ was raised up when he was taken up to heaven. Christ is seated at the right hand of God, interceding on our behalf. And as Christ did these things, we are promised to do these things. Because when we place our trust in Jesus Christ, when we believe that he came and he died in our place, taking our punishment upon himself, upon himself, and that he was raised again, we are made one with him. It says in Ephesians 1 that all things in heaven and in earth are united in Christ. In John 15, he explains it, saying that he is the vine and we are the branches. We are one. And in a little, uh, in, in another few weeks, we'll be talking about Ephesians 4, where Paul describes it as Christ as being the head and the church as being the body. Christ as the head and us as the body. So in Christ, each one of these three things was accomplished, made alive, raised up, and seated in the heavenly places. Uh, one of the one of the places that this is uh, simplified and condensed a little bit is in the Apostles' Creed. Uh, it's not strictly a, a biblical source, but there is truth in it. Uh, and it says uh, that he was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. Christ was made alive in the resurrection, raised in the ascension, and is seated at the right hand of God. And because we are made one with him, when we place our trust in him, the fulfillment of this work by Christ is a promise to us that one day God will raise us, that one day we will ascend and we too will be seated with Christ. So that is what God accomplishes here. But we are also told why. Verse 6, or verse 7 rather. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Uh, this language here parallels uh, chapter 1 in, in verse 19 where we, where we're 
where we are told um, that, uh, that it is in the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us that he worked in raising Christ. And now we are told that it is in the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us that he acts. And so through Christ and the promise that is made to us through him, God's grace is revealed to us. What was it that we had defined grace as? The speeding ticket? Or the warning, rather? We deserved punishment. But we got something else. We did not deserve this sort of reward. We did not merit this sort of reward. We only deserved punishment and judgment for our sin and death. But God's grace was revealed to us in the work of Jesus Christ. And His grace was not just revealed to us, but His grace was revealed to us in kindness. There's one commentary that, uh, that points out that this kindness came uh, in, in, in four ways. Um, there was kindness in, in the matter at hand. Because it was a kindness to forgive us freely. It wasn't required. It wasn't deserved. And ultimately, God could have allowed us to rot away in our sin. But in kindness, he extended his grace to us. There is also kindness that we see in how that grace is given to us. Do you remember the woman at the well? Jesus approached her and was kind to her when all of culture would have dictated that at best he ignore her and at worst he heap insults and abuse upon her. There's also the story of Peter after the resurrection. If you remember when, uh, when Jesus was being tried, Peter denied Christ three times in the span of an evening. And so just before Jesus ascends into heaven, he brings Peter to him. Uh, and this is John 21, verse 15. And when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. So Peter deserved a stern rebuke, even if he was to be forgiven. He deserved harsher treatment than this. Because before that had happened, Peter in his arrogance and his pride said, I could never deny you, Lord. I'll follow you even unto death. And just a few hours later, he's denying Jesus over and over again. So God's grace to Peter comes 
in this kind and gentle manner, not with shame or, or reproach, but in kindness. And I love this story because you can, you can picture it, can't you? Peter, this wizened fisherman, a little brash, a little impulsive. You know, we all know people like that, right? Tough. And, and you can just picture him weeping, sobbing uncontrollably, being confronted with this grace, being confronted with this kindness. And, and he's not just, you know, a few tears rolling down his face. He's ugly crying here. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. But God's grace came to Peter in kindness. It came in a kind manner and there was kindness in the extent, in the breadth of his grace. See, when we follow after Christ, with each passing step that we take along that road, he becomes more and more of what we want and more and more of what we get. And it'll proceed that way until that final day when all things are made new and, all, and the only thing that we want and the only thing that we will have is Christ. And we will walk by the light of his glory in that new creation. And so this kindness extends across everything in our lives. And there is kindness in the duration of this grace. Because this grace lasts forevermore. And it has to, really. Because if it were temporary, if it were removed after some period of time, we could experience his grace. There would be that limit to it. And if there is a limit to our experience of it, which we can call death, then there is a limit to how his grace can be displayed through us. But it says here in verse, in, um, verse 7 that the riches of his grace are immeasurable. The only way that you can show off an immeasurable gift is over the course of eternity. There's no way that you can show off an immeasurable gift in a finite period of time. So why did he do it? So that he might show the riches of his grace in kindness towards us. It's also important to note why he didn't do it. It doesn't say here that he did it because there was value in us. It doesn't say here that he did it because we were worth it or because he saw some little spark inside of us. But this is really good news. See, there are broken people all around us. People who are so broken by sin in their past or by the trauma of other people's sin or by depression, that they say, God could never love me. They believe that God could never love them as they are. 
But nowhere here does it say that God has saved those who aren't too beat up by life. Nowhere here does it say that God has only saved those who have it kind of together. When you come, what you come lacking when you come to Christ is only an opportunity for him to better demonstrate his mercy, better demonstrate his love, better demonstrate his grace and kindness towards you. So whatever the weight, whatever the burden you carry, the mercy and the grace of God is more than able to overcome it. And all that is necessary for that to happen is for you to cry out, have mercy on me, a sinner. Let him show you the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards you. And there are others of us who have the opposite problem. You feel that there is something inside of you that is worth saving. There is something inside of you that is good enough. And that is why God granted you this grace. But to hold this view, to say that there is something good enough inside you, and that's why God has saved you, ultimately is an attempt to steal from God. You're stealing his glory. You are taking away, or you are trying to take away, glory and to minimize his grace. And when you do so, it's an attempt to set yourself essentially on equal footing with him. And wasn't this the original sin? They saw that the tree was desired to make one wise. They desired to take something for themselves that God had reserved for himself. But regardless of whether you're in one of those two groups or in some other group altogether, the call to action today is the same. And as I wrap up, I'll have the worship team come up. The call is the same. Today, you need to place your trust and place your hope, your confidence for all eternity in the grace of Jesus Christ because, as it says here, by grace you are saved. You need to turn away from thinking that your sin and your brokenness is too much to save you because the mercy and love of God is enough to overcome even death. You need to turn away from thinking that your moral compass, your intrinsic goodness earned you anything because the sins and the trespasses you walked in have rendered you dead. And to pretend otherwise is to attempt to deprive God of glory and of honor. So the call today is to turn away from these things and turn towards Christ. Turn towards his mercy, his grace, and his love. Cry out to him, have mercy on me, a sinner. Cry out and seek after him from today until the day that he returns. Father God, we are so grateful for that call today. That the call comes, come as you are. And you promise to take our burdens upon you. To give us life and to give it abundantly. 
Help us to follow after you with whole hearts, with whole lives, to place our trust in you and in you alone. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace.